Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Mr. Dominic Frisbee, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Thanks very much, Robert. A pleasure to talk to you again. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I wanted to just plug your Substack right here at the top of the show. Uh, it's really good stuff. You are writing excellently, as always called the flying frisbee and you can find it at frisbee.substack.com and today we we're going to talk about one of your latest pieces money is language yeah well so i wrote this a couple of weeks ago and and i thought yeah robert's gonna like this mm -hmm. so that's why i pinged you a little message and it was something that kind of i suppose came out of it's a continuation of one of the conversations we had I don't know, was it last year or the year before? I can't remember now, but whenever it was, we last spoke. And it's all about money as communication and money as language. And I guess it starts with, again, something we touched on before, but this is the cable, the first transatlantic cable that was laid uh, between Europe, or it was actually laid from Ireland to New York. And it took, I think it took them three or four goes before they were first successfully able to, to lay a cable. And this would have been in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. Mm. And um, I think several people went bust <laughs> in the process and investors lost their shirt and so on. But, it, um, and that's often the case with new technology, you know, it happened with the internet, it's happened many times with, with Bitcoin and altcoins and so on. And this is laying anyway, cable on the ocean floor to connect Europe and North America, right? Telecommunication exactly, cable. This, yeah. Exactly. Uh, the first uh, telegraphic cable, I think it was called. <clears throat> and anyway, it, and because at that time, it took two weeks or 10 days, maybe, if you wanted to get a message from mainland Britain or Ireland across to New York, it would take you 10 days. <laughs> Can you imagine? Crazy. Crazy. And this is like only 1850, so 170 years ago. But I think 1866 was the uh, first time they got it right. And in um, July the 27th, 1866, Queen Victoria 
sent a message to the US president, President Johnson. And um, the message said, I love the way people spoke in those days. I'm going to read it now. But the, uh, the message said, the Queen congratulates the president on the successful completion of an undertaking which she hopes may serve as an additional bond of union between the United States and England. So very polite way of saying well done. And, um, <laughs> and then Johnson replied to Her Majesty, the Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The President of the United States acknowledges with profound gratification the receipt of Her Majesty's dispatch and cordially reciprocates the hope that the cable which now unites the Eastern and Western hemispheres may serve to strengthen and perpetuate peace and amity between the governments of England and the Republic of the United States. So, you know, really nice long-winded way of speaking that they had. Now, when that, before that message happened, it would, as I said, it would take 10 weeks to send a message. And now it was suddenly just a matter of minutes. Right. And so somebody came up with the slogan, two weeks to two minutes, which is a really kind of cool slogan for the time, two yeah. weeks to two minutes. And I bet they were all sort of thinking, you know, this telegraphic cable fixes this. Or, 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 uh, <laughs> <yeah>. It's funny. <laughs> I'm that of another Bitcoin slogan, but yeah. This on. is, I mean, this is basically the world's first text message, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's so incredibly formal compared to what we do today. But it's interesting that this happened. Then we got to the telephone. And then when texting became the thing on mobile, a lot of people thought that would never work. I mean, at least when it was becoming popular when I was young, there were a lot of older people. I remember thinking that, oh, that's silly. I don't I, my parents still don't send text, you know, but it's we I guess the point would be we started with text. Then we got to telephone calls and now we're back to this asynchronous text messaging thing. It was it was the first text message. And now the funny thing is people are sending voice notes yeah, instead of right. text messages, which kind of do my head in because they're like, no. I've got to listen for two hours, two minutes, however long the voice note is, but some people ramble on in their voice notes. <laughs> but anyway, and so I think the first, the very first messages that were sent were actually sent in Morse code. Mm. Um, and this would be before the Queen's message between Johnson and the Queen. It was actually sent in Morse code. And I don't, you, this, you're probably too young for this, but the very first pages that you used to get, like doctors had them, you could only send numbers and you would just get a, you would have a, a pager on your belt and you'd get a little vibration when you got mm. a message and it would just be the number of the person that you right. had to call. Yeah. So I would, in, in those days, I would get a, my voice, my agent would send me a, a, a message, call him, and then I would call him and it would mean I had a voiceover and I had to go and quickly go into town and do a voiceover. Hmm. But anyway, so, but of course it went from Morse code to words very quickly and transmission speeds improve rapidly and then it was possible to send multiple messages at once um you, you know down the cable at once and by the end of the 19th century britain france germany the us they were all linked by cable and you know relations political relations commercial relations personal relations they were changed for all time with just a simple bit of wire so wow. it was an incredible transformative bit of tech. But here's the thing. Now, back then, the world was on a gold standard, obviously. Um, UK had the dominant gold standard. And interestingly, 
um, there was a big argument going on at the time. They were trying to, um, you know, the French were trying to get everyone else to adopt metric. America was in an argument about whether silver should be a money as well as gold. And the various European nations were also having the same argument. But because the pound was only gold and there was no real silver money, not much, um, we, were on a, we were on a gold standard, not a bimetallic standard, and the pound had been so successful. Most countries ended up copying us. And so that's one of the ways that silver kind of got abandoned and left mm -hmm. the monetary system. But the only reason we went pure bimetallic in the first place is because there'd been a massive run on silver <laughs> when mm -hmm. Isaac knew in like 1716 or wherever it was, and we had no silver, it had all gone to the continent. So Newton just went, okay, we'll just do it on gold. So it was kind of accidental. Mm -hmm. But anyway, but the point was, so gold and silver were money, but you can't send gold and silver down a cable, mm -hmm. but you can send a promise. And within a fortnight of that first message between Queen Victoria and um, President Johnson, within a fortnight of that first message, that's what two parties who trusted each other did. And mm. the first official exchange rate between the dollar and the pound was agreed. And it was published in the New York Times, August the 10th, um, 1866. And um, that is why to this day, the pound dollar exchange rate is called cable. It goes back to that very first cable. So you could send promises, but you couldn't send mm -hmm. hard cash. Now, let me get a picture of a 20 pound note here. I've got a picture of a 20 pound note. I've yeah. got a 20 pound note here in my pocket. You still see, I'll just hold it up to the camera so that people can see it. You still see there's a 20 pound note there. Mm. And just underneath the, the Bank of England, so you've got the Bank of England sign there, and just underneath mm. it says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of £20. Still says it. Wow. So once upon a time, it would have been £20 of sterling silver right. <laughs> way back when. <laughs> but 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 it's so now it's, I promise to pay the bearer £20. So it's a promise. So this is actually a promise of nothing because yes. obviously it's fear. Right. right. But, and I'm, does it have, I promised to pay the bear on a US dollar? Does it still have that or not? It does not. Uh, the old okay. dollars said redeemable for a certain weight of gold or silver, but that's not on new dollars. I don't believe. I think now it just says in God we trust Federal Reserve. Notes, okay. Something like that. All right. So anyway, <clears throat> that's, that's that little tradition there. So I can now. Well, not actually. Let's see what the US says. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Federal Federal Reserve note. In God we trust. That's about it. Okay. So you got. Well, improved we trust. And then yeah, on the back, in God <laughs> we trust, which as we both know is in Fed we trust. Yeah. Okay. So, but the point is, you've got, and we'll come to Bitcoin in a second. But the point is, you've got. Um, two types of money. You've got the hard money, physical money, whether it's gold, silver, it could be shells or, or whale's teeth or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got promissory money. Yes. Now, and one is belief and the other is real. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, a- Adam Smith actually said, all money is a matter of belief, mm-hmm. which is kind of, quite, quite a profound quote when you think about it. And I suppose you've got to believe in the merits of gold in order to use gold as money. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but we have been using promissory money ever since the dawn of civilization. The very first debts were, as I, we spoke about this before, but clay balls with tokens, you know, a, a cone for a sheep and a, a disc for a, bar, a, a bushel of barley, whatever, it was baked inside clay balls. And then people found it was quicker to inscribe the clay balls rather than um, just inscribe the clay with pictures of the tokens instead. And that's how the first um, system of handwriting developed. Mm-hmm. And um, then in China, I think man started recording his debts on bits of leather mm. then they invented the printing press and and so we start promises are um recorded and exchanged on computers around the world and probably i don't know millions of promises billions of promises are sent every second i don't even know what the number mm. um and they transfer as quick as words but the point is is that community as money evolves or as communication technology evolves, so does money. And in fact, as in the case of handwriting and something like Bitcoin, um, it might actually be that that money is the spur to drive the communication technology forward. Hmm. Sometimes one leads, you know, it's chicken and egg. One, one right. Sometimes you get one, sometimes you get the other. Now, obviously, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it obviates the need for trusted parties altogether. You need trusted parties mm. for promissory money to work and Bitcoin obviates the, the, um, the, you know, it's a money communication network backed by mathematical proof and shed loads of computer power and all the rest of it. And the trusted third party is the blockchain. Mm. So, and I, and I would say to people owning Bitcoin is like owning a share in this new communication technology. Right. Who wouldn't want to own shares in something with as much potential as that? Um, and it's not like they're doing uh, rollbacks. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> it's not like they're issuing, doing bigger, issuing more shares in it. Yeah, that's anyway. a that's a great framing for it. Actually, I I often say something similar that imagine if you could have owned equity and HTTP or something like that, yeah. and all the companies that are built on top of that. That's sort of like what owning Bitcoin is. Um, absolutely as, as it's, you know, it's owning you know, a share in the protocol if i yeah. could let me echo a couple of things back to you just to try to summarize here so this idea of really transformational communication technologies they like you said we went from two weeks to two minutes so if you just imagine how much faster information and knowledge are now moving between these two continents and how much more coordinated human actions would become as a result, at least in the economy, right? So this, I mean, this is like the backbone for the for globalization or the global division of labor in a way is we needed fast communications. Otherwise, you can't do that. Yeah. And to your point, though, that promises on this tech are super high velocity, right? You can send them in two minutes. But the idea of sending, so that's deferred settlement, right? I'll pay you this or adjust the ledger that. But final settlement and something like gold, this technology didn't improve, right? You can't no. send gold over the telegraph wire. So we, we get into this problem where now the more useful money, the higher velocity money that's promissory has this people problem because now you have to trust people basically. 
not to, yeah you know to keep their promises i guess we would say and so and i like to quote that all money is a matter of belief but i guess the difference would be in a promissory money you're believing the individual making the promise or the group making the promise and it's something like gold or bitcoin you're just believing what is right like gold Gold doesn't deviate yeah. from what it does. It always kind of does the same thing. Bitcoin always kind of does the same thing. So it gives you this firm foundation for belief versus promissory mm -hmm. money, which is uh, notoriously unreliable. Yeah, promises don't last. <laughs> Gold does. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and Bitcoin probably will as well. Yeah. So, but if you're sending in promises, you need good especially important promises, you need good communication tools. Mm -hmm. And so then you could go take that one stage further and go, what is money but a form of communication? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so um, I, one of my golden rules with politicians, I try not to listen to them, but on the rare occasions that I, I'm forced to, um, I always go look at what they do, not at what they say. Mm -hmm. So you'll have, you know, I don't know, politician A, giving it the big one about world peace or something, and then he'll go and bomb a country. Or politician B giving it the big one about climate change, and then he gets on his private jet and flies off to Davos or whatever mm -hmm. the thing is. And you have to say, what we do says more about us than what we say. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do with our money says mm -hmm. even more about us right. <laughs> than what we do and what we say, if you like. Or doesn't necessarily say more but it says it tells a story in itself and it's but it's not just a so like if i uh you know was a bot and i had access to all robert Breedlove's spending habits and i knew that you know in any meet he spends this much on gym kit and this much on on t-shirts and this much on booze and this much on makeup i could pretty quickly get to know exactly what kind of a guy you are yeah and 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 I'm not suggesting you do spend money on all those things, but you, you know, you take my point. Every, everything except um, makeup. <laughs> <laughs> you mean that complexion's natural? <laughs> and uh, so, um, but it doesn't, money doesn't just communicate about us. It serves a secondary function is that it, how we spend money communicates value to the entire economy. So um, between buyer and seller, you know, what's the price of this thing? What is its value? And that answer is constantly being sent and received, digested, acted upon. It changes slightly. And so does the economy constantly, but also incrementally, gradually develop with each new signal. Mm -hmm. It's amazingly complex power at work here. And yet there's this constant never ending evolution and development. Um, and ultimately, it's the how, why and what of what needs producing where and when. That's mm -hmm. the, the message that's being communicated. So money in itself then is like a language. Yes. And if you look at the history of fiat money, let's say that fiat money started in, it didn't, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it started in 1914 when the British, French and Germans um, abandoned the gold standard to print the money to pay for World War One, Or we could say that it started in 1971, whenever, it doesn't matter. Um, Nobody is in charge of fiat money. It, you know, a central banker is to an extent, but 
you know, he can't control all the all the technological, all the fintech that's right. going on and all the evolutions. And, and it, you know, I don't believe our fiat system, it was ever planned. It's just constantly evolved. Yes. And um, with billions of people contributing in each in their own different ways, simply by using it, yeah. um, you know, and buying it and selling it and what you do with our money. And it's it's the actions of of, you, you know, I don't believe the architects of fiat money even realize that when a bank creates money when a bank issues debt money gets created right i don't think they realize that but they just adopted fiat money just to get out of a tight fiscal spot um you know extenuating circumstances at the time there's a war to fight and 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 it's constantly evolved ever since with the con you know we've each you and i have each evolved it just by buying and sending stuff but somebody who's developed some clever little widget whereby you can just tap and go with your credit card or whatever it is mm -hmm. you know these are all ways that have evolved the fiat money system but it wasn't planned you know there was there was a decision taken and various decisions have been taken but it was it was still the development was still in many ways organic but it was an organic development from unsound foundations let's put it like that and similarly nobody planned the language that we speak today mm -hmm. um you know it's very hard to plan and regulate a language and it's <laughs> many have tried over the years to uh, regulate the language they speak and they still do today you know if you use the wrong words you can get cancelled mm -hmm. uh, very easily and um even so, language is very hard to, to plan and regulate. And you might be banned from using certain words, but you can bet your bottom dollar that people are using those words. Um, oh, yeah. In private. When they're, you know, in private. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway. So language has constantly evolved and developed according to the use and the needs of billions of people. And again, just by you and I having this conversation now, we are evolving the language in a, in you know a minuscule way in the same way that if you and i were sending each other money we'd be evolving the economy in a, mm -hmm. in a in a way now the english that we speak today it's unrecognizable from the english of chaucer pretty unrecognizable from shakespeare it's 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 not that similar to the language of dickens there are probably fewer words than there were certainly than shakespeare had we have much smaller vocabularies than shakespeare did there are fewer tenses grammar's much simpler I know there were all sorts of efforts taken um, with the Americanization of English. The reason you have your spelling is somebody was just trying to simpl simplify spelling and mm. make English more phonetic and get rid of extraneous vowels. So we will right. spend, spell colour C-O-L-O-U-R. Right. You'll spell it C-O-L-O-R because somebody somewhere deemed that the U was inefficient and decided to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> this is back in the late 1900s i think this uh, the late 1800s i think this. but even though english is smaller than it was and different to what it was it's now far more widely spoken than it ever was with chaucer dickens or shakespeare right. um it's you know the network has grown yes now there's all sorts of reasons why the network has grown probably the main reason is the empire Mm -hmm. British Empire, you know, all over the world. Um, but then you could say, well, why didn't Spanish, why hasn't Spanish got the same reach? And it's probably because the the English, the, the, the Spanish Empire was centered around South America 
and Portuguese, yeah. whereas English was much more higgledy-piggledy all over the place. Right. And even though America wasn't part of the English Empire, the British Empire, you still spoke English um, after we after you kicked us out. Bad decision, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Let me, um, um, uh, if I could pause here, just to sure. echo a couple things back. So the point's well taken, and this is age-old wisdom, that talk is cheap, but actions are not. You know, we always hear actions speak louder than words. But then this idea of what we do with our money, right? How we spend it or where we invest it or what we save in. I agree with you that this is perhaps even louder than action itself because, you know, a single investment decision, especially if it's a large sum of money, could represent many years of actions, right? In one decision. If you're putting whatever the number is, 100,000, a million dollars at risk, presumably that took you a long time. A lot of actions to accumulate that much money that you're then investing with one decision. So it's almost like an amplifier, an amplified signal of yeah. action in a way. And then the other point that I think is key here is that, so again, talk is cheap because it's inexpensive, right? We can just produce words almost ad infinitum, but to produce, unless yeah, you're a central true. bank- Yeah, how true, no cost to ourselves. Yes. We can produce words at no cost to ourselves. Yes, and unless you're the central <laughs> bank, you cannot do that with money. Yeah. Um, so to the extent money is rooted in energy, right, that there's a cost necessary, that is the extent to which it gives you an honest signal, I think. And we could, we could frame this up in price signals as well, right, how fiat money destroys price signals in the economy. And then finally, I love this, this connection you're making between really language just being an open source technology, ultimately. Right. English is an open source tech. That's what it is. People use it. If it's useful, if they don't, they discard yeah. it. Really hard to regulate because it's, you know, damn near unbannable. I don't know how you could ban English. I can't imagine a world where that could succeed. And I think that's a good way to look at Bitcoin is that it's really just text, you know, so it's yeah. and it's open source. So it's kind of similar to, to English and, and language in a lot of ways. Now, yeah, it's quite interesting because there was a time there's a big argument that's been going on for hundreds of years about which weights and measures we should use which mm. whether we should use pounds and inches and and um uh, yards and miles or whether we should use uh, uh, and pints or whether we should use liters and meters and and um kilometers and kilograms and all the rest of it and at the same time and this all came out of revolutionary post-revolutionary france where they were trying to light just rid that they were trying to eradicate their history basically mm -hmm. and so they had these new measures and they also introduced uh, they tried to make the time go metric as well mm. <laughs> so they were trying to do like 10 hour weeks and uh, uh sorry 10 hour days and 10 day weeks and all this and it, that didn't succeed but another thing that came about a bit later but it was all part of the same movement whereas so you tend to see with imperial measures, or you call them English measures, don't you? Pounds and inches and all this. We don't even call them. We just call it the standard system, I think. The metric system and okay. standard system. Yeah. Okay. So the standard system. Um, and Which the is decidedly non-standard non worldwide, by the way. It's very arrogant of uh, us to call it that. Uh, uh, actually, it's not. Oh, okay. um, because yours is the most organic system. Hmm. Um, and it's the system like... You know, the, the inch, for example, is a thumb pressed down. Mm. A yard is a pace. 
a pint is the amount you have to drink to satisfy your thirst. Mm. Um, uh, a, a, a stone is the amount that you can comfortably carry without straining yourself. A pound is the amount you can carry in your hand comfortably. Mm. You know, a furlong is the, the distance you can sprint for. There, you know, a fathom is is your arms. They're all really, really. I organic. didn't know that. Wow. They're all. It's really organic, and most cultures around the world, world arrived at similar measurements. Hmm. Like, for example, the Japanese foot is a tiny bit smaller than the Western foot. Hmm. That's because the average Japanese foot is slightly a average smaller. Japanese person smooth. Is a little, is a, yeah. You know, so it's all it's all really organic, and you know, the hand is the best way of measuring up a wall or the height of an animal or whatever. Yeah. So they're really organic, and it was it's it was a very much a bottom up development hmm. what happened with weights and measures and then the um metric system was very much top down planned right. and it has very little like you know how long is a meter if you don't have a measurement that you can measure a meter with it's hard to actually measure what a meter is hmm. but you can measure a yard because it's a pace or it's you know three three average size feet with a boot on you know so it's actually quite easy to make measurements when you don't have some kind of measuring device. So it's very organic and it's all divide, devised bottom up around the human body. And so, like I say, the metric is, is, is a top down. And as part of this movement way back when they tried to devise uh, an international language <laughs> called uh, Esperanto. I've, yes, and they all said, look, I've devised this language. It's much better than English because the grammar's simpler and the da, 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 and and you know there are fewer words and there's no stupid tenses and you know all these reasons it probably is academically a better language I don't know I don't speak it but it probably is academically a better language than English but they try to say get everyone to speak Esperanto and mm -hmm. everyone's like well I speak English what's wrong with English <laughs> you, know, I, you know I'm not going to change my language it's too much effort it's too right. much so one's a sort of top-down plan thing and another's a bottom-up. Anyway, now we come to language. I've just got to get some stats off my computer. But if you look at native speakers around the world, uh, oh, God, I can't remember my password. Hang on a minute. I just want to I'll throw here out here. Here we go. That... Right. So if you look at... Oh, sorry, while you're looking that up, I'm just reminded of this quote that in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. So all of this top-down theorizing that Esperanto is better or the metric system is better, it just um, quite often isn't better than the bottom-up system, right? We The bottom-up system emerges the way it does for a reason. And um, yeah. usually that's because it satisfies, you know, some very basic things like you just described. Yeah. And it's it, it develops slowly over time, according to the needs and uses of billions of people. Right. You, you know, and I'm afraid that's what's happened with Bitcoin. It's mm -hmm. an it's it's a it's yeah, we got the top down planner in Satoshi, but pretty early on, he solved his little problem of doubles or his big problem of double spending and once mm -hmm. he solved that he said right i've got this is the one answer the blockchain but now i'm putting it out open source um i've got my stash of coins that i've mined <laughs> mm -hmm. and it, now here we go open source and it's an open source community that's developed it and now you know you see the work that's going jack maller and whoever it is the stuff they're doing mm -hmm. developing it further and further 
um, it's it's you you know I don't even think any of Satoshi's original code is even in exists anymore. If I if I'm right in saying that, I might be well, very little of it. I gather he wasn't even a particularly good coder. Yeah, that so, I I don't know. I know there's elements of Bitcoin that were kind of set in stone from the beginning, like the 21 million hard cap. But I don't know if the actual late you know code and language that he used to solidify that as the same code or not i'm not i can't speak to that i, I don't know yeah. somebody will know but and and is somebody who understands code now i'd like to tell you about a great new bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out brought to you by swan studios and bitcoin magazine this show is hard money with natalie brunel natalie is an emmy nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the bitcoin media scene and personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. But anyway, the problem is it, 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 Bitcoin has happened bottom up organically in the same way that weights and measures, in the same way that language, in the same way that money has. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, if you look at English, it's English has uh, 373 million people who speak English as a first language. Okay, 373 million. Mandarin has three times as many. Actually, a bit less. It's, it's 900 and something million. Call it a billion. So it's a bit less than three times as many speak Mandarin as a first language. But if you look at the total number of people that speak uh, English, it's 1.5 billion. I can't believe it's not higher, but anyway, 1.5 billion, mm. whereas Mandarin is only 1.1 billion. Mm. So, so English has something like a billion people who speak it as a second language. Mm. Now, then, you know, it's the dominant linguistic network. Let's yes. put it like that. And there might come a time when everyone in the world speak has some English. Um, and, so, and I can't see Mandarin becoming superseding English 
because it would require too many people learning it. And, um, you know, it's centralized in, in China. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I forgot to say is, is it was, English became disparate because of the empire. But the other sort of reason why it's a good language is that it's part Latin, part Germanic. So with most European languages, they'll either be Germanic or Latin, whereas English is higgledy-biggledy. And because it's had this global language, we've just absorbed loads of words from other languages. From oh. I can think of hundreds of French phrases that are English now, and there's loads of Indian terms, Hindi. Um, so it, it, you know, it absorbs stuff. Yes. Now, other languages fade away. We've got, you know, for example, Cornish, was it was a region into the southwest of England. It's all but died. Few people speak Welsh or Gaelic. The local dialects of France, Italy, they're all disappearing. I can imagine, I don't even know what they are, but there's probably loads of African languages, Asian languages, uh, American, indigenous American languages mm. that are on the way out if they haven't already gone. Um, and English is, for most part, replacing them. But it's not the same English that Chaucer and Dickens and, and right. Shakespeare spoke. It's a completely different English. But it's, it, you know, it's it could become, in fact, it's almost certain to become the default language of the world. I would say it's almost inevitable. Mind you, the French thought the same thing 100 years ago. Uh, About you know, French. it was thought the French, yeah, that it was yeah. French was the language of diplomacy. These are the same guys who were trying to impose metric and Esperanto on everyone. Yeah. But it was assumed that French would be the international language and it nearly was the french empire was pretty big um and it's probably america that's resulted in english being the language right. and not not french right anyway that's interesting right a, a, I, re it's, a it's rebel a from england then actually led to english becoming the dominant linguistic network um i just want to also throw in here i think there would be network effects too. So the bigger, yeah. more successful the linguistic network, the more likely it is to win. Because there's yeah. like clearly parents, if there's 1 billion-ish people, you said with English as their second language, it's very likely their kids are probably going to take English as a first or second language too, right? So yeah, the most successful linguistic network tends to stay successful and become more successful. Yeah. And, and you know, like VHS beat... Betamax, mm -hmm. but I think most people tell me that Betamax was better than VHS. Hmm. Um, you know, I always thought mini disc was a better technology than CD, but CD beat mini disc because the more users, whatever, that's so it doesn't necessarily have to be the best language in order to become the biggest one. Right, just has to have the most most users, and I'm not saying that English is better than whatever. Um, and you know, it's. It, this is despite having as third as many native speakers as Mandarin. And it's it's certainly not going to happen. You know, Gaelic's not going to become the international language or Neapolitan or Swahili or whatever it is. It's, it's going to be English unless something else for some reason comes along. Mm. And by the way, one of the reasons that here in Britain we're having such a problem. I don't know if you've seen this on the American news, but we're having a huge problem with illegal immigration and people trafficking and people getting these boats across the channel and coming across the water in the storms, you know, young men from the Middle East and Africa and stuff. Mm. And nobody can understand is why they don't stop in Europe. Why does, why does so much immigration people want to come to England? The reason is most of them have some English. Mm. They don't have any French or any German. They've just got a little bit of English. And they think, well, I'll come to England because that's, right. at least I've got some of the language. 
anyway, so hmm. if we scoop back round to money now and we go, how many different monies have there been in history? You know, shells, whale's teeth, metals, paper, cigarettes. I read that they use mackerel packs in prisons. Have you heard hmm. that? They use the trade mackerel. Um, cognac, Zimbabwe hmm. dollars, uh, rice marks, denarii, farthings, shillings, shit coins. Most monies have died. Um, and most of those which haven't yet died will die. And it's pretty much only gold and maybe silver goes on. And that's all to do with gold's permanence and its immutability and all the rest of it. But as I say, with transatlantic cables, you can't send gold over the internet. Sailor famously said that you can't send gold mm. down the internet, but you can send golden promises between trusted third parties. Mm. But then you're back into promissory money again. Right. Now, at the moment, the US dollar is the global reserve currency. And you can send the US dollar over the internet, but it's hard for people who aren't American to get a US dollar bank account. Mm -hmm. um, foreign exchange fees are expensive. Money transfers can take several days sometimes. Yeah. There are billions around the world, as we know, who are still unbanked. Yeah. Um, so they can't get any kind of bank account, let alone a US dollar one. Um, so the US dollar is a national currency that is used internationally. Right. And a country, if it wanted to, and there are many that do, could use the US dollar as, the, as their national currency. But at the same time, if you do that, you're importing US monetary policy. Right. And so you're subjecting yourself to the US political whims, um, which is why most countries tend to issue their own currencies because right. they've got their own political agenda. Which is a nice so, way of saying you're basically making yourself vulnerable to U.S. taxation via inflation. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, I put it more politely. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so even though it's international, it's still a national currency and it's limited by its national borders and by its politics. And the same goes for any national currency. But language is not limited by national borders, or at least English isn't. So I'm going to suggest, and this is the point of today's thing, I'm going to suggest that the US dollar is what French was 100 years ago, 120 years ago. You thought it was the international language, it was the official language of diplomacy, mm -hmm. but its scalability is limited. Mm -hmm. And if only there was an apolitical, borderless currency for the borderless medium that is the internet, then that really would be scalable in a way that no national currency is. And it would have to be a currency that's evolved organically and is constantly growing. Now, the Bitcoin price may be down 50% um, on what it was this time last year, give or take whatever date this gets published on, mm -hmm. but the network has grown 20% mm -hmm. over, the over the same time. You don't need a bank account to start using Bitcoin. You only need a phone with an internet connection. And we're not far off the point where anyone in the world 
who wants a smartphone has one. I went to the homeless charity the other day. I walked past it where they all queue in the morning to get their breakfast and they're all sat outside. All the homeless people sat outside queuing for their breakfast on the ground, all playing on their mobile phones. Home, all the homeless have got smartphones. And, oh. um, and I, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but we, we're not far off the point where anyone in the world who wants a smartphone has one. I imagine we're about a billion people away from that. Right. I'm guessing. So here's the thing. The US dollar is what French was. But if money is language, then Bitcoin is English. Hmm. That's the, the line. It has the potential to scale in a way that no other currency has. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the, the main point. I've got a little anecdote I'll tell you in a sec, but that's the, the my main argument. I, I really like it. Um, it's so funny, you know. I just I had been using this this line where to try and ban Bitcoin is as effective as trying to ban English, something like that. But I like how you've unpacked it a lot here. And the only other thing I would throw in is that this global apolitical borderless money for the borderless internet. The other thing that it's very significant to its value proposition is the lack of counterparty risk in holding something like Bitcoin. And as we've seen over the past two years, as you get more abuse and more oppression from counterparties, you know, whether it's the seizure of funds for the, from the Canadian uh, freedom convoy protest, or even the seizure of foreign central bank reserves by uh, the SWIFT network, basically from the Russian central bank. I mean, I think all of these, uh, occasions create more pressure to adopt something like Bitcoin that's free of counterparty risk or physical gold. I guess physical gold too is the other, you know, non-counterparty um, money monetary option. But of course, it's much less practical since you can't send it over the internet. Yeah. Um, and if if we're sending golden promises, but I've got I'm holding the gold that I promised to pay you. And then you're a naughty boy and you go and invade another country. Well, I'm not right. giving you the gold. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he who holds the gold makes all the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, the whole financial repression, the whole financial warfare that has been waged on Russia. I can't say I blame America's, American policymakers, European policymakers for doing that. I probably would have done the same had I been in their position. But it I, 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 I just I think it's incredible the weaponization of money mm -hmm. it's it's been quite something to behold and I imagine China's looking at that and going okay mm. we still got however many trillion US dollars here right uh let's let's get rid of them yes <laughs> before we invade before we invade Taiwan let's just get rid of these and convert them into gold or whatever yeah but um uh it's it so I think that that has probably delayed the inevitable invasion of Taiwan, uh, which is a good thing, but it is also longer term weakened the US dollar because it's made it apparent to America's enemies how much of how much by using their money you are playing into American hands. And right. there's amazing stat. I don't know if you know this, but you know the What's the best performing currency this year? I have no idea. Russian ruble. Ah, okay. 
you think you'd think it's the US dollar. I mean, there's there's bound to be some, you know, the Chilean peso or something, some right. obscure one is probably done better. But but the you you'd think it was the US dollar, which would be very strong this year, but the Russian ruble has outperformed it. And it's all because you know the US is the money of petrol, uh, 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 gas, as you call it, but but Russia is the money of natural gas, mm. and uh, uh, it started demanding rubles. You want to buy its natural gas, you've got to buy its rubles, mm. and uh, that's um, I guess that's the reason for it. But it's it's a uh, it's not a statistic you hear that often. But it's very telling. Yeah, that's such a, the the idea of requiring a certain denomination for energy contracts, whether it's oil or natural gas, that's a way to, to actually bolster reservation demand for your currency and give it that, that uplift in terms of, of purchasing power. Uh, that's yeah, what the US did too, right? We went off the gold sure. standard and then we pegged it to black gold, so. Exactly, and, 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 and your military. And the, it, I, I read that Indonesia is the world's largest coal exporter hmm. and uh so if i was the indonesian government i'd start right. demanding payment in rupees absolutely you know yeah you know yeah it gets back to that um, whole notion of money just... as money as energy basically right and so when you yeah. when you peg it to energy by requiring um payments to be made in your currency to buy energy it's it's good for the the currency network yeah the fundamental problem with money as it now is in my opinion is the fact that one body in society has the power to create that money right. at no cost to itself yes in other words without expending any energy yeah and while one body in society has that power society is inevitably going to be disproportionately weighted in favor of that body yes and so that really is an argument for you know independent money and Bitcoin mm -hmm. fixes this and all the rest of it. Um, let, let me tell you a little story mm -hmm. about that. I just, just a little historical anecdote that I stumbled across. So there was an American journalist in the late 19th century called Nellie Bly. And if you Google pictures of her, you know, she was hot. She was really beautiful mm -hmm. young lady. And she went on a trip around the world uh, in 72 days. And it, she did it because she'd read Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days and she liked Phileas Fogg and she wanted a, it was like, you know, uh, journalists do similar things now. You know, a journalist will go six months surviving on Bitcoin or something mm -hmm. as an experiment, whatever. Um, and so when she went around the world, she took pounds because at the time the pound was, she was American, but she took pounds because pound was the internationally recognized currency at the time. But she also brought some dollars with her mm. to, as she put it, as a test to see if American money was known outside of America. So she then went east from New York across the Atlantic and she didn't see, you know, and through Europe and she didn't see, so the story goes, she didn't see American money until she got to Sri Lanka, Colombo, um, where $20 gold pieces were used as jewellery. And they actually accepted her dollars, but only at a 60% discount. Now, I don't see how that's true, because if the money was gold, it was gold. But anyway, that's the story. It was a 60% discount. Um, you can go around the world, and it's still a bit of an ask to get people to accept Bitcoin in the physical world. Mm -hmm. But that's not what it's for. It's mm -hmm. money for the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's cash for the internet, money for the internet. And... You know, how scalable is the internet 
how scalable is money for the internet? Right. No, dead on. I mean, I often have described Bitcoin as just an extension of the internet, really. We just have this open source protocol for moving value sitting on the open source protocol stack for moving information. And yeah, how scalable is that? I mean, it's, it's an un, it's a limitless bottom up network. It can go as far as our ingenuity can take it. Yeah. Um, my friend, Charlie Morris, who writes, um, he used to be a, um, fund manager for HSBC and he's a real sort of traditional city gent. And um, he got into Bitcoin about, I don't know, 2015 or something. And he writes a newsletter called Byte Tree. But he's now convinced that Bitcoin is an institutional asset and it's being de-risked. And there's less risk in buying Bitcoin now at $30,000 than there was buying it three years ago at $3,000, mm. even though it's 10 times higher. He, he just thinks it's a, it's a proven institutional asset now and it will make up more and more uh, a part of institutional portfolios around the world. He's absolutely committed. And you get him, I mean, you know, I love talking about Bitcoin, but you get him on this subject and you're like, all right, Charlie, stop, give it a rest. But he's, <laughs> he's... <laughs> Sounds like a great guest for the show. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, with pleasure. I'll, you, you should welcome him on. I'll, I'll introduce you. Uh, this is... I mean, this is a really cool piece, Dominic. Uh, we, people often analogize money to language, but I think you've taken the analogy kind of a step further and really looked at the fundamental characteristics that, lang that language has, that money also has, and that the overlap between the two. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the success of English across the world and what the money of the internet could look like going into the future. Um, especially so when you consider all of the oppression and counterparty risk and, you know, broken promises, let's say, occurring worldwide. Uh, in my mind, at least, this just highlights the need for something that's not built on promises, right? Something that's built on a firm foundation like Bitcoin. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about the two types of people. You've got the people who are operating at grassroots who do whatever they're doing, and then you've got the top-down planners. Mm -hmm. And there's often this clash between the two and the guy, the planner wants one thing and the other guy wants something else. I think we're inevitably going to have some kind of international cryptocurrencies, some, inter, you know, it'll, it's going to be IMF coin or something mm -hmm. uh, imposed on us. And we're going to be told how much better it is than Bitcoin. And we have to use it for this, that and the other. And that's we're not at that point yet, but that's the battle that Bitcoin's going to have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um... What do you think that will be, I've thought about this a little bit, that there will be some type of economic crisis and then they'll insert IMF coin as the solution to whatever the crisis is and that's how they'll force adoption? Or how do you, if you had to speculate on how that would happen, what do you think? Well, I've been, you know, I think I've been as a sort of Austrian purist, if you like, waiting for the, the crash and then the adoption of sound money when everything goes to zero. And I think actually real life isn't nearly as clear cut as we right. like to see it when we're writing books or, or whatever. And so I just think there's just gonna be, I, I, rather than a sort of clean incident, I think it's just gonna be a sort of muddle through. Mm. And, you know, I'm glad we've mostly got rid of COVID 
regulations, at least we have in the UK. We don't, you don't seem to have elsewhere. My mum lives in America and she came back from America for a few weeks and she's like wearing a mask all the time and doing it. And I'm like, why are you still wearing a mask? But, but that's, you know, obviously what they're doing where she is. But the, the, we nearly, all that nearly happened with COVID. And I think if we'd had another year of it, it might well have happened, but for whatever reason, thank God that didn't happen. And a lot of that is to the credit of a guy called Steve Baker, who's a backbench MP in um, big into Austrian economics. He's a little known backbench MP, but he basically is really good at organizing all the MPs. And he basically said to when Boris Johnson was going to lock down again in December, he basically said, Boris, if you lock down again, when this is when Omicron came along, he said, if you lock down again, uh, we're all putting a no vote of no confidence in you. And so he forced Boris to abandon that lockdown. Wow. And so England sort of, like we always do, we stumbled into being the freest, <laughs> the freest country. We didn't do it by planning. We just sort of tripped into it. But anyway, suddenly England didn't lock, Britain didn't lock down and everywhere else did. Yeah. And our rates were no different to anyone else's. And so gradually it seeps. When one country does it, it seeps and it's gradually seeped. Like I went skiing in March in France and they were arresting people for not wearing masks in the bloody cable car. And you're like, we're up a mountain and in the, in the, you, we, you can't get it up. A, anyway. Psychotic. But, wow. but, but it's, that's, that's, that sort of accidental bit of freedom has sort of spread everywhere else. And that's for the time being from IMF coin. But I do think there's a dynamic at play in America and to a certain extent, like in 2008, the narrative was we need to fight deflation by their definition. And that's why we got QE and zero interest rates and money printing and all the rest of it, because they were scared of deflation. Now they seem to be genuinely scared of inflation by their definition. They can't hide it any longer. It's showing up in, in, in um, uh, what do you call it? CR, consumer, CPR. CPI. Yep. Yeah. And you know, even Biden said, you know, my number one priority is inflation. Now, you know, you, you tend to take what politicians say as hot air. But I think there's a very different thing now in place. The Federal Reserve actually wants stock prices lower. And it wants them lower this year. Because next year, there's going to be an election to fight it again. But this is the second year of a presidential cycle. It wants them lower. It wants people, wants crypto down. It wants house prices down a little bit because then money conditions tighten, everyone's a bit more prudent, you lose the sort of speculative mania that comes with some inflations, and everyone adopts a much more deflationary mindset, deflationary psychology prevails. And that means they won't have to put up interest rates by nearly as much. So I think it's important to remember that at the moment, the Fed isn't protecting assets in a way that it was 12 years ago. But if it... If it um, but it's interesting to know how much pain, you know, this s and rebounding a bit. I don't know if it turns lower here or carries on going up. I'm not sure. I, I buy both arguments. But if it um, is in, if there's real pain, then it'll start printing again. But, and I, I sort of think this Russia-Ukraine crisis, that looked like it was the beginning of World War Three. but I think it's just going to be one of these weird conflicts that goes on and on and on. And, and the West of the world stops caring about it and nobody really wins. And so I don't know if we're going to get this sort of mega 
crisis that IMF coin could come out of it. But I just think it's sort of somehow going to happen, you know, by accident. And it'll probably be imposed on a maybe. I mean, because we're definitely going into an environment of deglobalization, because nobody trusts any each other right. anymore in the way that they did four or five years ago. And maybe they'll see IMF coin as a way of saving, preventing deglobalization. I don't. I don't mm. really know, but I do. Th I know one way or another it's coming, whether by financial crash or not. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean. Yes. Agreed. The uncertainty is so high, so we really don't know which way it could go, but it does seem like it's going to be painful no matter what, because ultimately there's a reckoning that has to take place. And that is, what is it, 350% global debt to GDP, something like that? I mean, that that has to be reconciled at some point. You can't just inflate that well, away. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Robert. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. <laughs> 20 years for the reconciliation for the day yeah. of reckoning and, and and you know i've only got one life <laughs> <laughs> well i don't want to catch myself using the famous last words this time it's different but it seems like the existence of bitcoin does make things different like yeah it, i would agree you know, with that you kind of could hide behind the best of the worst fiat currencies right like if everyone thought the dollar was the greatest thing ever but the dollar is still inflating it makes that that dilution of purchasing power largely invisible when you're denominating in other currencies that are also being diluted. But now it's something like Bitcoin. It's like, it's kind of a, a, a truthful barometer to all the bullshit, if you will. Because the more they print globally, you're just going to see this Bitcoin price continue to go up, I think. Um, but yeah, who knows? I've been all impressed. that with a grain of salt. Yeah, I've been impressed by the way that Bitcoin's held at 29,000. 28, 29, whatever the number is, you know, it could easily have gone a lot lower and it didn't. And I think that's good. Yeah, it is good. I, I am sitting on a few dollars, hoping it does go down a little lower though. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic, this is awesome. I will, um, I'm going to link this money as language piece in the show notes. Do you want to let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Yeah, I, I started this Substack um, channel thing by accident in about February of this year. And it's just been one of these things. Sometimes you work really hard at something and nobody's interested. And this is just one of those things that just seems to have really caught on. And it's already one of the top 20 finance Substacks. And a lot of the time I'm just regurgitating wow. material that I was producing elsewhere, but it's just done really well. It's really popular. And yeah, I wrote this that piece for it. And I don't only write write about Bitcoin. I write about you know metals and mining and all sorts of other things as well. But but um, yeah, please sign up frisbee.substack.com. I called it originally the Flying Frisbee, but I think I'm going to change the name to Make Money and Stick It to the Man because I think that's a better title. <laughs> <laughs> that's a uh, much more poignant. <laughs> yeah. Dominic, it's been a pleasure as always. Love talking to you. Um, and yeah. I look forward to doing it again soon. Yeah, me too, Robert. I'm actually coming through um, the States in October. Okay. Uh, so if you're not in Hawaii then, I'm, I'm going to New Orleans. I'm going to see someone in Mississippi. I'm going to see someone else in California. But if you're anywhere around, uh, I'll stop by and we're going to have a steak and, and, uh, and a beer. Yeah, I'd love that. I'll likely will be in Nashville around that time. So Ah. I'd love to go to Nashville. I've yeah. never been and I really want to go. 
Nashville's a blast and it's right in that neighborhood of I Louisiana saw a great film. Yeah, I saw a great film last night um, called uh, it's called something like What is a Woman or something like that hmm. um, by this dude from Nashville. It just it's it's all to do with the trans argument, but he just goes around America asking hmm. people what a woman is. And nobody can tell him. <laughs> <laughs> what a crazy world we live in. Yeah, I'd really recommend that film if anyone hasn't seen it. I will check it out. Okay, well, thanks so much. All right, man. I'll see you soon. See you soon.